more Strange Stories UK here again. This is Series 4, Episode 16. Calling this one Joan Woodhouse, Murder and Cover-Up at Arundel in Sussex. Well, I haven't posted recently as I've been visited by the Covid fairies. I didn't feel too bad other than suffering coughing fits when I tried to speak, so I couldn't really record. As you may be aware, I record in one take with no editing, so this was a problem. If I feel a coughing fit coming on while recording this, I will stop the recording. This is part one of the Joan Woodhouse story. I'll post part two in four days' time when my recording allowance renews. On my last trip to the National Archives... I had a list of subjects that I wanted to explore when I was reading the files. One of these cases was the murder of Joan Woodhouse at Arundel in 1948. There was a file open with general information and letters from local people with information. But the main files are closed for another few years, supposedly until 19, sorry, 2033 although such dates are often extended for no given reason. The chief suspect that almost everybody, including the police, thought had committed the murder was well known and the name was in the public domain because it was given in another case that I was reading about in the archive files. The name of the chief suspect was Tom Stilwell, Thomas Stilwell, a local Arundel man who was a well-known sex pest. The murder investigation is now thought to have been an establishment cover-up for reasons to be explained. It was said at the time that the West Sussex Police under the Chief Inspector wanted Tom Stilwell charged and to stand trial. However, the Attorney General, the Law Lords and the Scotland Yards detectives were not so keen on charging Stilwell, so he got away with even standing trial. There are some similarities with the case and the Stephen Lawrence case 45 years later. As as a result of non-action on part of the police, the family of the murdered person had to take out a private prosecution to get some justice. There have only been three private prosecutions bought for a murder charge. Plot spoiler, the Stephen Lawrence case was successful as a result of there being a non-deferential public and a European Bill of Human Rights. Neither of these existed in 1948. When I moved to the West Sussex area, I got to know Arundel quite well and often used the Black Rabbit pub on the banks of the River Arran. It's an area where I often used to mountain bike. A popular destination is Swanborough Lake, where it's possible to hire a rowing boat. I seem to remember the water always being clear, clear enough to see the bottom of the lake and the shoals of fish, although I seem to have a memory also of the lake being dry after a prolonged drought when I first moved there. The Swanbourne Lake lies in the lower part of a deep steeped sided valley or coombe that had been eroded into the chalk, the chalk bedrock. Damming of a stream in the valley created the lake and its overflow was a chalk stream known as the mill stream. 
A mill pond is known to have existed on the site before even the Norman conquest. The mill pond was enlarged in the late 1700s, covering about 17 acres. And this is when it became a popular beauty spot. On the northern bank of the lake is a path, and then a steep bank leading to an enclosure of trees called Box Cops. I read a true crime account of the Joan Woodhouse murder, which pricked my attention because of, it was a murder in Arundel, which seemed an unusual occurrence in such a, a peaceful rural town. And the name Box Cops had stuck in my memory. This is where the body of Joan Woodhouse was found. Arundel has changed little over the years. A road bypass has been built which took away the heavy traffic from the pleasant main street and the streets running off. The railway station is away from the town. Uh, the town dates from Norman times. Arundel Castle being built on the previous Norman Mott and Bailey Castle site. Arundel is a perfect day out. Junk and antique shops, pubs and tea rooms, and interesting buildings and gardens to explore. Going back to 1948, Arundel Castle and a lot of the surrounding land was owned by the Duke of Norfolk. This was Bernard Marmaduke Fitzalan Howard, who was the 16th Duke of Norfolk, and he was known locally as Duke Bernard. Duke Bernard was a keen cricket fan and he was appointed manager of the England Tour of Australia in the winter of 1962-63. His appointment astounded just about everyone connected with the game. He was a popular easy-going and a real cricket enthusiast, but he had no track record or qualifications suited to the job of being England cricket manager. It was said that he was appointed due to the strong personalities in the England team at the time. No one else wanted the job, and the Duke said that he would do it. He was well liked and took the pressure off the team, and one of his daughters married the England cricket captain, Colin Cowdery. I think it was Dexter that was captain at the time. Colin Cowdery became England captain later. Touring cricket teams regularly played at Arundel. The Duke was a poor village cricketer. When he played, it was customary to let him get off the mark before he returned to the pavilion. At Arundel, the umpire was his own butler, who, when he was out, would diplomatic announce, His grace is not in. The Duke was an influential member of the aristocracy in the establishment, and he was involved in the coronations of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth the second, amongst other grand affairs of state. The Duke will appear later on in the story and doesn't come out of this in a positive light, putting his family name and reputation before anything else. Joan was an only child born to John and Nellie Woodhouse. John was a musician who had once been a miner. Nellie worked at the local school teaching needlework and weaving. Joan grew up in a loving religious family that included her maternal aunts, Ida and Annie, who lived at Bridlington on the east coast of Yorkshire. Both aunts were widows, having lost their husbands as a result of World War I. 
Joan's mother had died of cancer in 1943 at the age of 46. Joan graduated from Barnsley Girls High School and continued her education at the University of London in Bloomsbury. She studied librarianship. Joan was deeply religious to the extent that she attended mass and confession every day. During the Second World War, Joan was called to serve in the Women's Air Force where she met her best friend, Lena Bamba. After World War II, Joan started working at the National Library in London, the British Library, where she worked in the Rare Books Department. She lived in a flat at Baker Street in central London. During this time, Joan joined the Third Order of the Society of the Sacred Mission, part of the Anglican Church. As a member, Joan drew up her own rules of life principles. Her own personal Ten Commandments, well actually there were 15 commandments, I won't list them all here other than to say that it involved a lot of praying, reading the Bible, fasting, confession and giving away a quarter of her income and being in bed by 11 o'clock at night. In December 1947, Joan's father remarried to a woman of a similar age to Joan, and at around the same time, Joan became very close to a fellow librarian called Ted Roberts. It was thought they were about to become engaged, but the relationship was called off, possibly due to Joan's intense religious beliefs and the fact that Ted was considered low church. This resulted in Joan becoming depressed. It was thought that Joan had made a half-hearted suicide attempt during March 1948. Joan confessed her sin of attempted suicide and she was given absolution by the priest. Her family realised that she needed support. Joan's family had become concerned over her well-being and they persuaded her to leave her flat and move into a Christian hostel where, they could, where she could be amongst other people rather than just being by herself all the time. Joan moved into the YWCA hostel at 29 Bennett Park, Blackheath. The YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association, being a safe and affordable residential accommodation. By the 1980s, the YWCA hostel ceased to exist. Joan was popular at the YWCA hostel and made friends although she was still thought to have periods of depression. She seemed worried about her future. She was aged 27 and she was worried about not becoming more settled. The summer of 1948 was particularly warm and the City of London was hosting the Olympic Games from the 29th of July to the 14th of August. These were known as the Austerity Games as due to the difficult economic climate and rationing. No new venues were built for the Games. The events were taking place mainly at Wembley Stadium, which was known as the Empire Stadium, and the Empire Pool at Wembley Park. At the start of the bank holiday weekend on Saturday the 31st of July, there were huge crowds in London. The weather was very hot. In fact, the 31st of July 1948 was to become the hottest day of the century to date. Joan had decided to visit her father and aunts in Yorkshire for the bank holiday weekend. It would take about four hours by train. Joan was said to be in high spirits 
after packing her bag. She planned to catch the 1010 train from King's Cross Station. Before she left, she let the hostel kitchen know that she would be back on Tuesday the 3rd of August for dinner. Joan soon discovered that the London transport system was very congested on that last day of July, with people arriving for the games or going to the seaside or country to enjoy the hot weather. There were queues snaking back at London railway stations as extra trains had been arranged. It's thought that Joan changed her travel plans, deciding to catch the night train to Yorkshire, as she'd done in the past, to escape the heat of London. To escape the heat of London, she would spend the day near the south coast, where she had spent holidays with her family in the past. Her aunts had lived at Worthing, and Joan had visited them there, and knew the area well. Her favourite picnic area had been the box cops at Swanborough Lakes in Arundel Park. It was later surmised that Joan would have liked to have told the family that she had visited that favoured spot when she later saw them that bank holiday weekend. Joan travelled to Worthing and deposited her case in the left luggage office sometime at around 1.30 and then she travelled to Arundel in the Sussex countryside. Joan was spotted or sighted in a shop buying a drink of lemon barley water called Lembar at a chemist shop at around 2pm. She was then seen walking towards Swanborough Lake along Mill Road. We can't be sure what happened next but it's thought that when she reached Swanborough Lake she started walking towards Box Cops. This is where she was spotted by Thomas Stilwell a sexual pervert with the reputation of bothering young women and girls in the area. A woman by herself would have likely excited his imagination. As he started to follow the woman, Stilwell was distracted by two men that he knew from the town, Mr Clements and a Mr Challen. Mr Challen had a young daughter with him. They were all walking in the park. Stilwell spoke to the group about the possibility of collecting walnuts from a tree they were looking at next to the path. Stilwell went to go and sit next to the tree, and Channon and Clements continued walking in the direction of the lone woman had gone. But then they turned off the path to the right. Stilwell said that he ran off after the woman, wanting to get ahead of her and double back to force a meeting with her, which he did. He said... Good afternoon, lovely day. When she made no response, he muttered to her, We'll bugger you then. Joan was then thought to have climbed a steep track to Box Cops, and then attempted to ascend the uh, steep slope to find a space to sunbathe in private in the wooden, wooded enclosure. Thomas Stilwell had spied on where Joan had gone. Stilwell later told police that there was another lone man in the park with a pair of binoculars. But no one else saw this man, and it was thought that Stilwell had invented this other person as a possible suspect. Stilwell did admit to the police that he went behind a bush and masturbated. Stilwell, in a state of sexual excitement, is thought then to have made his way to where Joan was sunbathing. Going on previous people's experience of Stilwell's actions, he may well have had his penis out and was masturbating next to Joan when she became aware of him 
and what he was doing. She would have likely screamed and tried to scramble away, closely followed by Stilwell, who would have caught up with her and manhandled her, while Joan was screaming and resisting. It's possible that Stilwell had never gone this far before, and forcibly tried to stop her screaming, as she writhed and struggled on the ground. This would be the point when Stilwell would have strangled her, with his hands to stop her making a noise and attracting other people that he knew were in the local area. It's likely that Stilwell would then have tidied up the murder scene to make it look less of a struggle, and checked that there was no one to see him leave box cops. It's likely that his shirt had been torn in the struggle and had bloodstains. Also, it's thought that Joan had bitten him on his hand. Stilwell then made his way to Littlehampton to purchase a new shirt and get rid of the torn shirt that he had been wearing. He then went to the cinema and played darts at his local pub, The Black Rabbit, and tried to act as, possible, as normal as possible that evening. That's what is thought to have happened. It's also thought that Stilwell met his mother when he was making his way to Littlehampton, and he may have told her what happened. On Wednesday the 4th of August in the morning, when Joan didn't show up for her work at the National Library, her manager called the hostel. The hostel warden, Jesse Maddox, was also had just received a telegram from Joan's family to say that she had not arrived home as expected on the July the 31st. Maddox reported Joan missing to the Lee Road police station. Joan's father and Auntie Ida travelled down to London, her other auntie staying in Yorkshire, in case Joan came home. A description of Joan was circulated. Five feet tall, aged 27, slim build, sallow complexion, blue eyes, straight nose, oval face, two front teeth slightly overlap, mould on the right side of the lip, a reserve personality, with a fawn tweed coat, a multicoloured frock, a cherry-coloured woollen cardigan, a string of pearls, and two diamond rings on the right hand, a brown handbag, and a brown weekend case. As I said, it's likely that Stilwell told his mother what had happened when he accosted Joan, probably giving an account that favoured him, saying that she was accidentally killed. His mother, it's thought, did all she could to cover up for him. What his mother was probably unaware of was that Joan's body laid undiscovered. As it laid undiscovered, Stilwell would have likely returned to it in the first few days. He would have interfered with it and masturbated near the dead body. As each day passed and the body decayed and became subject to insect and rodent disturbance, it's possible that Stilwell still returned to the scene of the crime despite the smell of death and decay. On one of these visits, a brass dart fell from his pocket, without him noticing it at the time. This dart would, of course, link Stilwell to the body, and was probably part of the reason that he was to inform the police that he'd found the body, as there could have been more evidence to connect him to it. So, if he gave the excuse that he found the body, it would excuse any evidence linked to him. 
Stilwell realised that the police would consider his behaviour when he reported the body to the police. He had to convince the police that he'd found the body by chance. On the 10th of August, the day that he claimed to find the body, he ran to the keeper's lodge on the lake, borrowed a bicycle and rode to the police station. Feigning horror and panic at about 5pm on that Tuesday afternoon, Stilwell entered the police station and blurted out to a Sergeant Bristow, I found a body at Box Cops in the park. It's a girl, aged around 26 or 27. The police and Stilwell made their way to the place to find the body wearing just underwear. And away up the slope, neatly folded, Jones' outer clothing lie. The face was decomposed and the features unrecognisable. One of the policemen stayed with the body, while the other officer went to get detectives and scenes of crime to attend. Stilwell set off for his home, Fox's Oven, in the hamlet of Offen, and later went to the Black Rabbit pub again to play darts. So who was Thomas Philip George Stilwell? He was born in Arundel in 1924. The Stilwell family were well known in the area and could trace their line back to the 16th century in Arundel. His father was said to be Thomas Rawling Stilwell. He was born in 1879 and had been in the Royal Navy. When he returned to Arundel, he took on labouring work to supplement his Navy pension. In 1923, he married 21-year-old Ellen Agnes Parsons, who was 30-odd years younger than him. Thomas Rawlins Stilwell was well known for being a drunk. Ellen had grown up at the White Horse Pub in Tarrant Street, Arundel. Her father was a licensee. She had also worked in service at Arundel Castle. By the time she was married, Ellen already had one illegitimate daughter, born in 1919, when Ellen was 17 years of age. Thomas Rawlins was named as the father on the birth certificate. Ellen was to have to have three more children. Thomas was the middle one, born on the 30th of June 1924. His father was said not to have taken to Thomas, as he did not believe that he was his biological father. According to police notes, the parentage of all Ellen's children were in doubt. The Stilwells lived in a tied cottage known as Fox's Oven, owned by the Duke of Norfolk's Arundel Estate, not too far away from the Black Rabbit public house. Thomas Stilwell had been a butcher's boy during the war, after he left school delivering food in the local area on his bicycle. As he got older, he became a general labourer, a house painter, did quarry work, asphalting and the like. It's not known why he did not join up for the forces, as he was eligible as from 1942. Thomas Stilwell played football and darts for local teams. It was well known that Stilwell's personality was flawed. He had difficulty controlling his sexual urges. The Brighton Argus newspaper has not got a good reputation in Sussex. The stories it reports on are often tabloid, sensational and lacking depth and perspective. Its reputation wasn't enhanced when reporting on the finding of Joan's body. 
On the 11th of August 1948, the newspaper printed a photograph of Joan's body before she was even identified. It showed the victim in a state of undress and legs apart. The photograph must have been taken with the knowledge and permission of the police and can only be described as a compromise of the crime scene and a breach of privacy and abuse of the family's sensibilities. I can't help thinking of the tragic events of the Smallman and Henry murders at the Friant Country Park in June 2020 when the police were convicted of taking photographs of the dead woman and were imprisoned for their actions. That podcast, They Walk Amongst Us, has just uh, covered this case. Very, very well done it is too. 1948 was a different world and the photograph of... uh, Joan Woodhouse being published in the newspaper. Worst was to come for Joan Woodhouse. Her reputation was about to be questioned by Scotland Yard detectives and theories about her love life printed in the newspapers. Detective Inspector Fred Narborough and his assistant, Detective Sergeant Patterson, were drafted in from Scotland Yard to head up the investigation and to offer assistance to the local constabulary, the local police force. West Sussex had sought assistance from Scotland Yard, as was customary. It was expected that if a crime such as murder occurred in a smaller police force, expert detectives used to dealing with such cases would be drafted in with specialist staff. The well-known pathologist Dr Keith Simpson was also travelling by train to Arundel. Simpson carried out his post-mortem examination. His findings gave an estimated date of death as of July the 31st, 1948. The body was too maggot-ridden for semen swabs. The body had been strangled, severe pressure on the neck with the right upper horn of the voice box broken. There was forcible sexual interference and fresh cuts and bruises to her lower legs indicating that she ran through undergrowth before death. Fred Narborough was one of a number of detectives who regularly made the press, investigating high-profile cases. These detectives would become household names for a generation of the general public who carefully followed their cases. Names such as Fabian, Capstick, Wickstead, Spooner, Reed and Slipper. Narborough was one of these celebrity detectives. He had the reputation of being a pugnacious tough guy and this case would cause him to cut short his career with the Metropolitan Police Force. When Dr Simpson was carrying out his autopsy, Narborough was trying to ascertain the identity of the body and soon realised that it must be Joan Woodhouse due to the description that they had been given of missing people. Narborough then started to jump to conclusions about Joan. He developed a theory that Joan had been involved in a heavy petting session that had got out of hand and resulted in her murder. He learnt that Joan had recently been engaged. Nabra organised a search for Ted, her ex-fiancé. In his rush to make up for lost time, Nabra started sharing his theories with the newspapers before contacting Joan's family. Firstly, just to let them know that it was Joan's body that had been found, and secondly that he thought that the address book that was found in Joan's bag had listed the names and addresses of dozens of men, leading him to believe that she had many lovers. 
Nybra was convinced that the murderer's identity was among the names in the address book. He was adamant that Joan was a good-time girl, who travelled to Arundel to spend the weekend with a man. These accusations provoked fury from Joan's family. Their daughter, they insisted, was highly religious and would never contemplate such a sordid liaison. And investigating such a line of inquiry would be a waste of valuable police time. West Sussex Detective Detective Inspector Dean had first questioned Stilwell regarding him finding the body of Joan. Stilwell claimed that he had been taking a short cut from his doctor's surgery when he discovered the body. He said that after discovering the body, he had warned two young girls playing nearby to stay away from box cops. Although given the very steep slope, it's very unlikely that young children would have attempted to visit the area. Still would explain how he went through a bag and the clothing of the dead body. This is when he claimed that a brass dart fell from his pocket. The police did not ask what caused them to search through a dead body, which seemed a bizarre thing to do. There was also no probing from De- De- Detective Dean. He was just completing the paperwork by getting a statement from the person who found the body. Still will explain how he borrowed a bike to cycle to the police station to report his find. On the 11th of August, the next day, Stilwell returned to the police station to ask if they'd found a brass dart with an orange flight. He thought he may have lost it when he discovered Joan's body. PC Bristow said that he started to have doubts about Stilwell as a result of this visit. Meanwhile, Fred Nybra was pursuing the line of inquiry that Joan was a good-time girl that got unlucky. For Nybra, Joan had not bothered visiting her family in Yorkshire that weekend as she was meeting her lover. She was found dead next to her clothing, which had been neatly folded. Her diary listed pages of names of men, the press speculating that Joan must have been a nymphomaniac or a sex worker. Nybra was concerned to continue the momentum in the press and photographs of the clothes that Joan had been wearing on the day that she disappeared were printed in the press. These were worn by the wife of a policeman but with Joan's face superimposed on the picture given to the press. This appeared in almost all the newspapers on the 13th of August. I put a photograph of this on the, um, on the Facebook site. Archie Greenshields was a police officer at the time in Arundel. He later recorded his recollections of the investigation into the murder. He said that following a very hot August bank holiday in 1948, the body of a young woman was discovered in a lonely spot in Arundel Park. Following an investigation by the pathologist, it was found that she had been strangled. And on attending the police station for duty that day, he discovered that there was a tremendous hive of activity. Not long afterwards, he was sent with others to assist the inquiries that pointed to the fact that her last known place, before discovering the body, was believed to have been at a hotel in Worthing. He said each of us from the Littlehampton and Arundel district were to work with a member of the Worthing borough team, armed with a recent photograph of the girl, Joan Woodhouse. We were told to visit every hotel in Worthing in an attempt to discover where she had been staying prior to her death.
Greenshield said that he'd worked with a DC Stoddard, who subsequently reached the rank of uh, Chief Inspector. And they had the task of visiting every hotel on Marine Parade from the pier westwards. It was never discovered where she had stayed, and what is more, her murderer never came to trial. The man who discovered the body was the prime suspect. Greenshields was based at Littlehampton Police Station. In his memoirs, he also says that he arrested a man following an indecent exposure to a woman. He said that uh, this was not a... He had no power to arrest for indecent exposure at this time, as he describes it as a non-indictable misdemeanour. In fact, it only became a criminal offence in 2003. Greenshaw said that there was a number of complaints coming in of young women being exposed to indecency in the Musebrook area, which is the tourist area of the seaside town. He said that a man was interviewed, but no charges were ever brought. But the indecent exposures in the in the area ceased. Thomas Stilwell was known to frequent the Littlehampton area, which is less than four miles from Arundel. If Stilwell had urged to expose himself, he would have been too well known to have done it in Arundel, and he must have thought that targeting tourists in the Littlehampton area would be his best option. It was never stated who the man was that exposed himself in the Littlehampton area. The examination of the hotels and guest houses in Worthing turned up nothing. Then, as a result of investigating the names in the diary of Joan, it was discovered that Joan was the unofficial secretary of the Liberians Professional Association, and each of the names in her diary were fellow Liberians. It seemed that Narborough's theory was not panning out as he expected. Joan's ex was located. Ted Roberts was now the assistant librarian at Folkestone, and he had a solid alibi for the time that Joan was killed. Detective Narborough's next move was to compile a list of every unattached male living in Worthing and Arundel who was present that bank holiday weekend in August. Later, every male over the age of 15 years of age was questioned. Nybra still seemed convinced that Joan's private life was the reason for her death. Did she have a secret lover in the area? It was on the 23rd of August when Nybra interviewed Stilwell for the first time. Stilwell's name had come up as a result of local gossip. When Nybra started to challenge Stilwell on aspects of his story such as Stilwell's claims that box cops was a shortcut home from the doctor's appointment, as box cops was a shortcut from nowhere, Stilwell got very agitated. But then he won Narborough over by saying that he had in fact been out catching rabbits, and if he was caught poaching his parents would lose the right to live in their tied cottage, as it's forbidden to catch rabbits on the Arundel estate. And that was the reason that Stilwell claimed that he had lied seemed that Nybra accepted this explanation. Nybra did not have the local knowledge and it was many people that thought that Stilwell was a sexual pervert. These were the local people. Nybra's investigations were not making any headway. He decided to invite Ida Sheriff, Joan's aunt, down to Sussex to gain an in-depth understanding of Joan's life.
There was a meeting on Wednesday, the 29th of September, 1948. In this interview, Joan told the police what the family had told them several times previously about Joan's lifestyle. She explained that Box Cop's connection, saying that it had been a favourite picnic spot for the family. She explained why Joan would have removed her frock, as she was a sun worshipper. And she explained the reasons that the family thought she had not come home on Saturday the 31st of July was because King's Cross was crammed full and the heat that day was unbearable. And so she had taken the day out, going down to the south coast. Joan's family were sure that the police had been told this on several occasions. Narborough claimed that the interview had provided new information for him. He claimed it was a moment of clarity which showed that the previous six weeks had been wasted while he was looking for a spurned lover. In his autobiography, Murder on My Mind, published some years later, he implied that it was the family's fault for not informing him of Joan's habits. It seemed that the inspector was looking for reasons to blame others for his own incompetence. Narborough's claims were clearly nonsense, as the family had protested very strongly about Narborough's early theory, which put Joan in a poor light, suggesting that she was a good-time girl. The family realised that Narborough was looking for a scapegoats to blame, as his initial theory had been so far, far wide on the mark. He had not even interviewed Joan's family before publishing his views to the media. There also seemed to be a rift between the Sussex detectives and Scotland Yard. Ida Sheriff implied that West Sussex police believed that there was a strong case to charge the local man Stillwell, but Scotland Yard didn't want to. The West Sussex detective, Detective Inspector Dean, was now very suspicious of Stillwell. He insisted that Scotland Yard Sergeant Patterson joined him in the interrogation of Stillwell. It was well known that Thomas Stillwell had been sexually harassing young women in the area and their interview with Stillwell proved interesting. Stillwell admitted to being in the park the day that Joan was thought to have been murdered on the 31st of July. He also admitted that on that day he had been sexually aroused in the park and had masturbated behind a bush. He also said that he whistled at the girl when she ignored him and when he walked past, he muttered, bugger you then. And then he admitted that he watched her and followed her for a time. Dean and Patterson calmly persuaded him to say more. Sergeant Patterson produced a photograph of Joan and placed it in front of Stillwell. Is this the girl you spoke of? Stillwell broke down and started to cry and agreed that it was the girl. Stillwell said that he supposed that it must have been him to blame for her death. Stillwell then stopped himself and remained silent for some time before he said, well it was me that scared her, she must have run into box cops where somebody must have found her. A long silence followed. Stillwell seemed to be composing himself and said, let me look at that picture again. After examining the photograph he handed it back saying that on thinking about it, the photograph did not resemble the woman that he spoke to on the 31st of July. It was probably this interview that there was a basic error made by the police and that they did not caution Stillwell 
before interviewing him. The evidence that they gained from the interview would be inadmissible in any potential court case. It was also possible that Narborough later interviews also lacked a caution, advising a suspect to the right to silence. The Woodhouse family claimed that there was no immediate attempt after the interview to look for any potential forensic evidence from Stilwell. This does seem puzzling. The police had grave suspicions. They almost broke Stilwell in interview, but they did not follow up this by looking for forensic evidence. If this was true, and we don't know as the records are not yet available for inspection in the National Archives, then this would be another basic error by the police in their investigation. Allegedly, detectives did examine Stilwell's clothing, but they say that no evidence was found. It was thought that it would have been important to examine Stilwell's boots, given the scuff marks on the trees and the ground at the murder scene. But there's no evidence of this being attempted. It's likely that given the length of time between the murder and the arrest, that any clothing was vulnerable to detection would have been disposed of. It was thought that Stilwell's mother was doing all she could to get rid of any potential evidence, and she was recorded as taking the family washing to her sister's home for cleaning in the case of any it being seized by the police for inspection. There was also the question of the injury to Stilwell's hand. He'd been to see the doctor about. If Stilwell was suspected earlier, it might have been possible to confirm or discount whether the injury to Stilwell's hand had been as a result of a human bite. It's generally considered strange that Stilwell did not come under closer scrutiny when he first made the discovery of the body. As a rule, the first people in an investigation for murder that are eliminated from, from the murder investigation are the next of kin or the person that last saw the victim or the person that finds the body. So why wasn't Stilwell under greater surveillance and investigation? Detective Inspector Nybra's dogged dispute, uh, pursuit of the spurned lover was detrimental toward other lines of inquiry. This was a major failing in the opinion of Ida Sheriff, Joan's aunt, who had always argued against this, and as already said was concerned with the negative inferences about Joan's character. She wanted the newspapers to stress Joan's good points, her good character, and detail her rules of life. She argued that people were less likely to come forward if she thought that Joan was a good-time girl. On Saturday the 9th of October, Detective Dean again interviewed Thomas Stilwell. Inspector Narborough finally stepped in and had Stilwell in for an interview on Tuesday the 19th of October from 9.40am to 5.15pm and then again on the Wednesday the next day, the, 20, no, sorry, the 23rd of October from 6.30pm to 5.30am. So the intensity and unsociable hours of these interviews were designed to break down Stilwell. Stilwell gave the police more information. He admitted that he regularly masturbated al fresco in the park, and he explained how he became sexually excited by a group of girl guides in the park on the same day Joan was murdered. 
He said that he lay down on his side and made water. The strange term that people could say maybe refer to urination. The people don't urinate lying down on the ground. The police took it as referring to masturbation and ejaculation. There is another point to be made here. The fact that Stilwell had volunteered the information to the police that he regularly masturbated, or made water being his expression, when he was aroused in the park. This provokes the question, why was there a reason for telling the police this information when there was no need to? Could it mean that when he was concerned, that Stilwell was concerned that traces of his semen would be found near the body? If Stilwell had returned to the body and in his deluded state of mind decided to make water, could this be a method of explaining away any possible traces of semen found at the murder scene? Stilwell also made the admission that his sole purpose in entering Arundel Park on the 10th of August was to expose himself to two young girls he had seen. He said that on discovering the body he had seen the two young girls near the body and wore them away. He had considered exposing himself in order to scare them away. He's not sure if he had or not. This would suggest that he was exposing his erect penis so often that he could not be positive exactly when and where this actually happened. Police said that a mitigating circumstance for this bizarre behaviour was that Stilwell recently spit up from his girlfriend and was sexually frustrated. It was suggested that Stilwell overshared telling police that he suffered from premature ejaculation and he seemed to, to boast of his ability of being able to gain an erection again almost immediately after ejaculation. The, pless, the, pre, the police hadn't pressed for this information. They thought it seemed conceited and that he was boasting about his sexual prowess. It seemed that the information gained by the police in the interviews was that Stilwell was the man who not only discovered the body, but also admitted being in the immediate vicinity on the day of the murder, had talked to the victim, had no alibi placing him anywhere else at the actual time of the murder. Also, he had a motive. He was a sexual predator who lacked control and was easily aroused by women and young girls and by his own admission stalked them. After the interview with Stilwell, Narborough rang Joan's father, John Woodhouse, and said, We know who the man is. He knows we know who he is. But we don't have enough evidence yet. It's a matter of time. John Woodhouse was said not to be su uh, surprised to hear that the man was Thomas Stilwell. He'd been approached... Well, Thomas Stilwell had approached the family after the inquest to express his sorrow at their loss, and he acted in such a strange manner with them that they suspected him from that time. Well, that is the conclusion of part one. I will post part two in four days' time, and until then, I'll say goodbye. Thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'll say goodbye.